0: You're listening to Punk. This episode, If I Die Before I Wake. Uh, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. Sitting with me today, as ever, are Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And Mr. Ben Simpson. Hello. So today on the show we are looking at the 1947 Orson Welles film The Lady from Shanghai uh, starring Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth and it's based on the 1938 Raymond Sherwin King novel If I Die Before I Wake which has now given our episode its title. See what we did there? Very clever. Um, This is, uh, do you know what, let's start with the really, really obvious thing. my relationship with this film has changed an awful lot over the last 20 years, I guess, of watching it. I didn't like it at the start. I'm much better with it now. But my big sticking problem, um, well, you can probably guess, was the accent.
1: Yes, the accent.
0: Orson Welles' Oirish Oyrish with an O uh, accent.
1: Begara.
2: Ah, jeez. <laughs> when I start out to make a fool of myself there's very little can stop me if i'd known where it would end i'd have never let anything start if i had been in my right mind that is
1: yeah so the guy lived in ireland for a while he he lived in Ireland.
0: No, let's take it further than this. According <laughs> to the mythology and when you're talking about Orson Welles, I think it's always a fairly uh, safe assumption. Yeah, yeah because or,
1: yeah, he, he was a he, he was a dreadful embellisher in terms a of his raconteur, life. Yeah. a
0: storyteller.
1: If, he, if Orson Welles tells you a story about something, you're going to double-check it with at least three people before you take it, with anything more than a grain of salt.
0: But Orson Welles tells the story that when he came here uh, to Ireland, when he was, what was 15, 16 years of age, um, he arrived in Dublin and managed to convince a couple of leading, well, a couple of very reasonably prominent theatre producers at the time uh, to take him in, under their arm and employ him permanently. He let on... He, you know, he was actually more important in the States than he was at that time. But I love the fact that, you know, he's such a uh, such a, a shining talent that they took him under the wing instantaneously. They lived here for so long and his Irish accent is appalling. Hmm.
1: It's like he's never even heard an Irish person speak except somebody who was from Hollywood doing an Irish accent.
0: That'd Badly. Be, that'd be Hollywood, California, not Hollywood County oh, Downs. Although, that's a terribly bad accent. Also, a terribly bad Irish accent, let's be honest. Oi! (laughs) Ben, how do you feel about Orson Welles' Irish accent?
2: Um, Moik. It was a bit keek, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's the thing, like, anytime you hear somebody doing an Irish or Northern Irish accent, Uh obviously, we are from. That the the,
0: so we the are, beautiful we are.
2: part of the world, <laughs> oh, you know, geez. where everything's green and that. Um, you, anytime you hear somebody doing uh-huh. an accent from here or down, down, down south across the border, you're like, mm, eh, you shouldn't really be doing that. You should probably get somebody from that, that, that part yeah. of the world. Is this a problem that... <laughs> Is
0: this something that we should maybe be more of with actors? Anyway, that that perhaps um, they they you know we should. I mean, actors use accents all the time. That's not unusual. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: so I mean, my my first thing about this is um, I I understand that the film is being made. More or less on the back of Orson Welles pushing uh. it through, and the fact he's able to get Rita Hayworth in, and and it is it's not not so much a passion project, but a project that he is on board with and is a driving force behind. Mm-hmm. Fine, okay, so maybe it has to be Orson Welles. It, I, you know, he's he is he brings a certain particular something to the film as an actor. He brings certain particular something to the film as a director. Why did they keep the character Irish? It makes no odds to the plot whatsoever if he, if that character ceases to be Irish. Is anybody, any huge fans of the book going to be coming and beating down the doors of the cinema going, I demand Michael O'Hara's name uh, be changed back to whatever? You know, how dare you make that not Irish? I mean, make the character, just let the character not be Irish. It makes no difference. Well,
2: like, he could have had that name and been an no. uh, ancestor of...
1: Could be second-generation Irish immigrants. You know, there's no reason why that character had to remain an Irish character in the face of the absolute inability of Orson Welles to pull off a convincing Irish accent. I suspect it's more to do with the fact that Orson Welles had lived in Ireland. He went, God, yeah, I can definitely do an Irish accent. How very dare you say that I can't? Um, And, yeah, I mean, at that point in Orson Welles' career, he's still the enfant terrible to a certain extent he's sort of diminishing returns but it, Hollywood hasn't quite given up on him yet so maybe he did have the, the cash out to just go screw you guys I'm being Irish and you can't stop me
0: I just don't know quite honestly <laughs> I mean I guess um does his, his nationality code the character in some way, shape or form that you then look at him and perceive him in particular ways? I know? can't
1: see that it does. Genuinely, can you? I don't you guys.
0: 1940s Ireland. Uh, 19, uh, being Irish in America in the 1940s probably means something a little bit different to how it does today. Yeah. Um. It it probably is a nostalgic stereotype. I guess that there's an element of that's meant to jest uh, does the un- drunken Irish stereotype exist at this point? Probably. Um, yes. As as workers, as underdogs, maybe. Well, that was
2: referenced in that the, the movie anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I think he makes a comment about um about intelligence as well. There is possibly the perception that being Irish meant you were a bit thick and a bit slow, and therefore you know you were a likely patsy because they could con you. You would just accept the stuff and wouldn't even realise.
1: That's, that makes it worse <laughs> that makes it worse um,
0: I, I I mean this is the thing I, I have spent many, many years getting over this accent, yeah, um when I first saw it, I struggled so much that i didn 't enjoy it i i couldn 't not see beyond the accent uh, these days. I know that it sounds odd, but I just ignore it and I try and enjoy the rest of the film just for what it is.
1: Well, I mean, I I came to it as as part of um, uh, some work I was doing on film noir at the time. So I first encountered it before I actually really had much to do with Orson Welles as a director. I mean, Orson Welles as a director and actor, just generally a filmmaker these days, is probably one of my favourite filmmakers Mm. of all time. I mean, I would... I would almost certainly have forked out money to see the guy direct a, a, a stage performance of a reading of the phone book um, I genuinely love everything he does and lady from uh, from Shanghai there's still a lot to love about it um, the accent is a major stumbling block for me because I can't buy that character uh, everything he's doing there I mean it's it's a wonderfully understated performance in a lot of ways and everything except for the accent but I can't by that character at all I, um, think,
0: I think we're going to have to move past the accent otherwise we will spend
1: <laughs> the whole episode, the episode complaining sh- about the, the accent so this,
0: let's just accept this is a show produced by people from, from the island of Ireland who find the Irish accent adopted by Orson Welles within this film uh, is somewhat uh, just wide off the mark
1: yeah I think we should do a whole episode at some point about the, the Dodgy Hollywood, Irish accents? The Hollywood oh. accent no 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 the Hollywood attitude to Irishness on screen I think there's a lot to be said there but anyway I accept it I move on good (laughs) Hallelujah!
0: Um, You did mention film noir. However, I don't think we've really talked about film
2: noir on the pod
1: before. Have we
2: been Uh, maybe mentioned it in passing once or twice? Oh, now I'm excited. Do you know what film noir is?
0: Do you understand the term in any way, shape, or form?
2: Uh, Is it that kind of sort of? I don't know. Educated guess would be a a particular type of um movie. Yeah. Sort of generally involving um law and police and that yeah. crime. Crime,
1: yeah. effectively,
2: yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um they tend to be
0: these sort of black and white movies. I mean it's the black and white era when the, the the term sort of comes into its own. Um but it's not just black and white. It it's very very, very black, very, very white. It it's I suppose actually in terms of sometimes the plots as well it's very black and white. Well
1: but. it's essential I mean it is effectively about the darkness that lives in the heart of all men and the sort of the metaphorical darkness being um, turned into visual darkness. I mean they're, they're beautiful films when you see what's actually being done artistically with these films um, I I love the sharp contrast between light and dark that just really really works for me visually um, they have a lot of problems um, ideologically they come from a really dark time in the American psyche and they're specifically American films. Um, I mean, the cycle arguably begins in 1941 with the Maltese Falcon. There's some arguments that it starts a year earlier than uh, that. The but Maltese Falcon with Pierre well, Larry. Yeah, the Maltese Falcon and then it ends with Touch of Evil in 1950, oh no, 58? 58,
0: 58. You
1: knew that one, Ben. I do know this and I know how long the film noir yeah. cycle is and I can't <laughs> believe I couldn't remember that. But... Um, it's, it's,
0: we did watch that one.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's just it's brilliant, and I love that film. I love it. It's probably my favourite film noir. Um,
0: but they, they, they are essentially um, crime they're, dramas. They're often, dark films o- about often dark the gangster movie. elements. But they don't have and... to be
1: because uh, Mildred Pierce oh. is a family drama, hmm. uh, but it's still a film noir.
0: Um, the, the visual style is very influenced by German expressionism. Uh, so, again, it's that what they call chiaroscuro lighting. It's, it's, it's again, the dark black blacks, the, the light lights. Um, you'll often see odd camera angles, particularly in an Orson Welles film. Orson's very good at doing stuff that, that looks a little bit different and more interesting. Mm. Talking
1: of, of film noir featuring Orson Welles with crazy camera angles, um, watch The Third Man watch the sequence with them running through Vienna and count the amount of times that the, the camera is skewed at, a, at an angle, okay? You can't do it. You literally can't do it. There aren't enough numbers in the world.
0: The Third Man is a film that we are going to come back to.
1: I oh. love The Third you, you, Man.
0: You will have heard me Ben talking about this in one of, in, in one of our project ideas. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you were, we can't say more for our listeners at this stage. Right. There's a plan, but uh,
1: yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a type of film that's that is really about looking at wickedness, and it's basically about looking at wicked women as well. Mm-hmm. So, you, have you heard about the concept of the femme fatale, Ben? No. Okay, um, she's basically a woman who is very beautiful um, and knows that she's very beautiful and uses that beauty and sexuality to get what she wants. So she lures our our hapless hero, who's often very flawed himself, but she lures him into a situation where he is kind of um, obliged to commit an act that he doesn't agree with or he ends up in a lot of trouble. Um, she generally ends up dead.
0: Can you can you see a parallel? Can you see why this might be regarded as a as a film noir yet? Uh, no. You can't you can't see those elements within within our
2: film today. Well, yeah, I suppose yeah. Right. So is is that the norm for for film noirs? Yeah,
0: pretty much. So it means that they're very easy to read. I mean, the the, the thing about a lot of I don't know, use in of comments is genre films. Right. You know, stuff. Ah, that...
1: it's film noir a genre. Another question for another day.
0: Uh, <laughs> what the, the issue about a lot of genre films is that they they do sort of follow these little beats. There there are certain dramatic. Um elements, little tropes that that you could, almost got guaranteed to happen, yeah, so you can walk into there and kind of know what you're going to get by the end of the film. You know what the character development is going to be very very roughly, obviously each of them takes its own little joy from the way that the plot is particularly weaved, particular actors' performances um little details like that that's where the joy comes in them mm-hmm. you know it's the same way we we talked um we, we were having a conversation earlier on about James Bond films, yeah um You know, so this idea that all Bond films are the same—you kind of know what you're going to go into uh, when you, you see yeah, a Bond what you're film. But, but each of them is different, and yeah. they, you know, they are the same, but they're also very different. And film noir, in in to an extent, is the same. Same way, like certain horror films follow certain things, certain yeah. musicals follow yeah. certain C- certain tropes. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean they're they're
1: they're. Deeply misogynistic films. They're films with um, a clear sense of the threat that women pose all the way through. There's kind of socio-historical reasons for that. I mean, they start... evil? Sorry?
0: Because women are evil. Women are
1: evil. We, we, we actually aren't. We just want you to think that so you'll fear us. Um, they start in the, during the war period when um, women are being urged to step into the traditionally male Uh, workspaces because the men are being called up to fight um, and there is this sense and this is all something that's identified sort of after the fact, it's not really something that that anybody notices happening at the time but there's a sense in which women are moving out of the domestic sphere and maybe emasculating the male sphere somewhat and then once the war ends and we need to get women out of the workspace back into the home so the men can have the jobs again and the women kind of don't want to do that anymore um, they've seen what it's like to have a bit of economic independence and they kind of want to stay working now. Yeah. Um, so film noir comes out of that period of real deep uncertainty and real social upheaval. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, the, the French, it's a French term, obviously, but um, it comes from the fact that during the war, during Nazi occupation of France, uh, American films aren't being viewed at all. Um, So all of a sudden, liberation happens and all these films arrive um, en masse. And, you know, the the French have been used to seeing these lovely screwball comedies from from America, maybe a bit of Western every now and again. And all of a sudden, they're watching these films going, good God, America, what happened? Everything got so dark and miserable and nihilistic. Um, And that's where they get this idea of film noir. And they are the ones to identify it as being a, a separate type of film. And that's... That's where Lady from Shanghai comes in. And it's not the noiriest of noir films. I mean, it's got lots no. of noir. It's a bit bright, really, to be noir. noir you know, it's an Acapulco. Noir like. being
0: French for black. Yeah. So I guess also, I mean, not just black, but also shadow, I think. You know, mm. when you think about these, these are, these are films that are very much in the shadows. This film in particular. And you know, uh, this film is full of shadow.
1: It's also full of really, really bright sunlight. Mm. He spent a lot of time on a yacht.
0: Well, yeah, on Errol Flynn? Flynn's on yacht. On Errol
1: Flynn's yacht, yes, <laughs> with his beagle. Mm-hmm. The, the the dog that randomly turns up in Elsa's arms um, is Errol Flynn's dog because it was his yacht. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on, on sort of the visuals of this film?
1: Um,
0: uh, it was all right. Like, okay, let's take this uh, a different way, okay? mm -hmm. So, you, I think the only exposure you've got to Orson Welles before this really was
2: A Touch of Evil, which I don't know if you recall, it's been a few years. Was that the one with the long shot at the start? Yes. That's the one, yeah. Yeah.
1: Charlton Heston playing a Mexican. Yeah. And yeah. some interesting casting.
2: Okay, so you remember
0: that film, and yeah. he plays the rather grotesque. Um, the three time that's he, on the border. That's there. the one, and he, he Orson Welles plays the the, the cop Hank Quinlan, yeah. who may or may not be good, depending on your point of view. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's nice that you, you you made some kind of reference to the fact that you and I have arguments about the goodness or otherwise of Hank Quinlan all the time.
0: <laughs> so. Um, you know, if you take those two films as a, as a comparison, I mean, just
2: interested in sort of your, your, your take on it. Well, so you mean, you mean from like a sort of cinema
0: yeah. shot? Yeah, I mean, uh, the,
2: Rachel, I suppose the thing
0: is that Rachel and I, we were used to doing this, yeah. and I'm always interested, in, and, and we've seen these films so many times now. Yeah. I'm quite interested to hear what somebody who doesn't know these films so well, who doesn't have the you know the educational uh brainwashing that we have yeah and seeing how you respond to it because um, i remember how you responded to touch of evil and you know you
2: seemed more positive than than i was expecting yeah well, well that that shot at the, at the start of touch of evil was like that was that's crazy because that like was one take mm-hmm. you know what i mean to get all that lined up and yeah you know that that's holy crap yeah, we, um, we, we've we worked on sets together. We know how difficult it is to get two people to do the same thing yeah, at the time, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, everyone's timing had to be um, spot on for that. But in this, uh, it seemed a bit more uh, choppy. Mm-hmm. Um, like, looking, if you compare that, you know, whenever he's, he... Spoilers he, he gets caught And then in the court They're about to file Whether he's guilty or, or not And then mm-hmm. he takes the pills Yes And then does that acting and, and the fight scenes And all that Which were also very choppy Like um, And then he runs mm-hmm. Like uh, You would have thought that He would have tried to do something similar You know With that long shot of uh, More of a following thing But that just seemed very You know choppy It's like Oh I'm going to re- Walk past here, mm-hmm. and then she's going to come out of here. And okay, then I'm going to run over there, and then she's going to go. You know, it was like backwards and forwards between the two characters. I thought it would have been, you know, you know, he might have came up with something to.
0: I think this is why. I mean, so you you watch them in, in sort of reverse order. Uh, Touch of Evils 58. This is 47. So this is this is, this, this is earlier. Earlier. Ah, all right. Um. So his cinema is changing, and part of the reason that that people talk about that touch of evil sequence so much is because it is it does feel like it's quite revolutionary mm-hmm. even though it's not the first time a long take has been used on screen yeah um it has a, a lot of power and its choreography is amazing
2: yeah um, I, I don't i don't remember any long longish sort of in this one shots in this one there's not really um, however
1: however you remember the sequence at the end in the funfair? Yes. That was an, there was originally a ton more footage shot of that. Now, that, I completely agree you mean with the
2: you. The where he, he gets up and, and he's in the funhouse with no, Yeah. And he's trying to. Get Basically, out, he's yeah. get,
1: going down the helter-skelter and he's yeah. in the Hall of Mirrors and stuff. Yeah. We actually don't know what else was shot because the studio, as was its way with Orson Welles, freaked out and recut it. Yeah. And that footage is considered lost. So yeah. I reckon there's probably a lot more wells in that film originally mm-hmm. that um and I think where you see the Wellesian directorial excess in this, I think it's definitely in that funfair sequence that we don't have mm-hmm. anymore. Um, it's in the decision to shoot on location in Acapulco, which is kind of not really done. He just goes, sod it, we're going to Mexico. Yeah. Well, that,
0: that, that's a very Orson Welles thing very to do. Very Orson
1: Welles thing to do. Just piss away the budget. It mm-hmm. um, would tend to be shot uh, on a sound stage. I mean, you can fake Mexico in California. It's not that far away. Yeah. But no, no, Orson Welles has to take people to the location which I think a b- w- beginning to freak the studio out slightly anyway. Also he cut Rita Hayworth's hair, which they weren't keen on. They cut, they cut it and dyed it uh, blonde. The studio were very upset about that. Uh-huh. Deeply upset about that.
2: You um, know the other bit whenever he's up talking to George, is it? Uh-huh. Um,
0: How'd you like $5,000? That's what I said.
2: $5,000, fella. And what do I have to do for it? I'll fill in the details later. Meanwhile, think it over, Michael. It's $5,000. It's yours. All you have to do is kill somebody. But who, Mr. Grisby? I'm particular who I murdered. And you see that shot looking over the sort of. Over the bay? Of the bay uh-huh. and the islands and stuff? You know, like, I don't think you could have recreated
0: that. No, but this this is this is one of the points that I sort of made that even for that, that's quite a lot that's played in shadow. Yes, yeah, that's there true. there is sunshine there and you can see that it's this beautiful location. Yeah. But you watch the way that the light is on, on, on both George and, and Mike, and there is a lot of shadow on them. We're not seeing them brightly lit by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. That's there is a very something good one, actually. something really menacing about every single shot in this film. Now I mean Wells um talking to Peter Peter Bogdanovich uh, about the construction of this film, does say that the bits that he was l- least happy with were the opening sequences in the park. Like for Wells, he just thought they were very, very pedestrian. He wasn't happy with the way the film had been scored, ultimately. Mm. Um, and not all the cutting decisions he was happy with either. But for him, that just doesn't work. And I kind of agree, that's that's why I struggle the most. Once they get beyond that that really meat cute um, it actually gets a much becomes a much more interesting film. The dynamics are more interesting. Um, you know, there's an awful lot there that that, that I that I love.
1: Um, yeah, I I do totally agree though with what Ben's saying about the the courtroom scene. Um, I, I mean, the only way that feels Wellesian to me is the the kind of the farcical side of it. He's, he's kind of trying to poke fun at the. At the sort of solemnity and and sort of pomp of the.
0: Oh, Wells is on record. He didn't like law. You know, yeah. he, he wasn't keen on lawyers. He wasn't keen on, on sort of the legal processes. Yeah, but um,
1: that, that, that sequence. And he spent feels time in a Yeah, that that sequence does feel pedestrian. It feels, and am I right in saying that he wasn't terribly, terribly excited about this film?
0: Um, he doesn't appear to have been totally alone. Again, you know, there is the problem with the mythology yeah. and him recounting it. Uh, this
1: after the fact of it being uh-huh. taken away from him, of course. At which point, then he he doesn't have the film that he wanted to create anyway. So the,
0: the chronology of it is is a little bit um, a little bit confused. I was trying to dissect it this morning.
1: Oh, that's right. That's the story. He he, he supposedly picks up the book. He's trying to pay a bill or something to get the, his his stage to it's, complete his, his stage show. He,
0: he's he's doing uh, was it, around the world in eighty days. No. Yes, and he's run out of cash. He's going to have
1: to close it otherwise, um, and he's trying to get the money from the studio. And he he apparently pitches to them on the fly a book that he sees lying around now. Given Orson Welles' record on um, playing fast and loose with the truth, that may well be bullshit. It is. Who knows? Is it? You reckon it, it, it is? It,
0: it's pretty much bullshit. Uh, producer William Castle, who yeah. is better known as the director of sort of schlocky horror films, *Serpent of the Nile*, the magnificent
1: Suisse. film featuring a gold-painted Julie Newmar. Everybody should see it.
0: There we go. I didn't think you'd know who William Castle was. He directed
1: honest. *Serpent of the Nile*, is one of the films that I studied for my PhD. Mm. There
0: you go. Mm. There you go. Um, but uh, William Castle had apparently originally picked up the book and he'd pitched it to Wells and they'd had a chat about it and, and basically the way the conversation supposedly went was that one of them was going to produce, one of them was going to direct. They weren't quite sure which way it was going to be around. Uh-huh. Um, and Castle had been trying to pitch it to different studios and the studios basically weren't, weren't basically taking it at all. And at some stage, Wells has gone in. The suspicion is after the rights had lapsed to the book, which Castle had acquired, and Wells pitches it and he gets offered the money there and then. And he then says to William... It's great, you know, we're gonna to get to work together, you know, you're gonna be executive producer. Um, but part of the package is that I get to write, I get to star, <laughs> I get to direct, and I get to produce it. I mean, this is a, a whole you know, we've talked before about auteurs, we talk about this very regularly. This was a whole auteurial package.
1: Wells is a control freak as well.
0: Um, so I mean he's gonna do everything. Yeah. Castle wasn't was wasn't particularly happy because Wells was also offered a lot more money than he was gonna get. Yeah. Um, but he said that He knew that regardless of what he did, it was going to be an experience working with Wells. Yeah. He would learn something from that experience, no yeah. matter what way it went.
1: I, I'm going to say something that I never imagined myself saying, but I actually genuinely would have loved to have seen the William Castle <laughs> lady from Shanghai. Do you know? I mean,
0: there's no room for gimmicks in this. William Castle is a guy who rigged up theatre seats with buzzers when making The Tingler in order that people get electric shocks you, you say to frighten that, them.
1: You say that because the current iteration of it, the one that we got, doesn't have gimmicks in it. But I actually think. <laughs> I, I <laughs> it's hard. There's a lot of silliness in this film.
0: There is. I, I I
1: it could work really well as 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 a kind of a schlocky and in fact I think Wells were... taking it a bit too seriously probably isn't what the material needs.
0: I uh... I mean, Wells was disappointed that the thing for which this film was remembered is the final sequence in the the, the the Hall of Mirrors.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I have taught that sequence so many times. You it's it. your fundamental classic film where, look, everybody's reflected. Who is the real person? My word, metaphorical mirrors.
2: So that were um, Bruce Lee. Uh, oh crap, what's the, um, what's the name of that one? Into the Dragon. Into the Dragon. Oh
1: yes, that that that's a, uh, yeah, it's an homage. Yeah,
0: quite probably. Yeah. I mean it was very influential. It's been picked up on lots and lots of things ever since. John,
2: John Wick. There's a mirrors thing in that yeah. too. Basically, um,
1: anytime you see something like that, it's probably referencing or homaging that sequence. in well. is Wells. that the
2: first time that that had been done?
0: No, whole, I think um, holes and mirrors uh, wasn't necessarily unique to this film. Yeah. Um. But this used them in a different way, and it made it so iconic. I think because it it's quite inventive with with what it does. It's quite bold with how it plays out that whole sequence. Yeah. Um. I. I personally. I. I love that sequence. I would love to see more of that yeah. whole fun house because it does feel like it starts to jump a little bit. It's um, a bit jarn. Well Wells is kind of he, he's drifting in and out of that space and you can see him him kind of exploring. You're kind of just wondering why he he's doing what he's doing. And it feels a bit like a dream sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and, and whether it is a dream sequence or not it, 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 there's not enough of it there to, to make any kind of assumption on it
1: Absolutely, you either do that and commit 100% or you don't do it.
0: Which which Wells might well have done I, in I his think, 150 I mean, minute odd cut.
1: There was a crazy amount of Funhouse in that, that original cut according to whatever um, Well, the,
0: the, Apparently the, the scripts are still available for the original version of the film um, and yeah. so we have some sort of record of what was intended to be there. Yeah so but you not know so you, footage.
1: You can't capture no, you're a not, Wellesian well. film in, in a script.
0: Um, so there would have been a lot more, definitely. Uh, but but it is an interesting sequence. It is visually quite. Uh, I mean, you can't help but have your attention drawn to it. But again, that is not unusual. This is, it. the, the sort of layers are very familiar, again, from the German expressionist films of the 20s and 30s. Um, if you look at Carol Reed, a director we've just mentioned in, in terms of The Third Man, he also showed a film here called the Old Man Out. Yeah. And there's a sequence in Odd Man Outset in the Crime Bar, which, you know, you will know. I know that. You know that bar? Yeah. Um and, and they're basically looking and, and James Mason's sitting down looking at a, a pint of Guinness and the shapes and stuff that start coming out of this pine of Guinness, and there's this sort of surreal multi-layering of images. This is not something that is uniquely well to have all those different layers one on top of another, but where it is is how he plays with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you like those characters become as disorientated in that room full of mirrors. You know, you're looking at them, you can't work out who's who. So whenever people do eventually get shot, you're sort of trying to work out. I, certainly every time I watch it, I'm still trying to work out where is the real person and, and how, how did that happen? Yeah. My logical brain keeps on jutting into <laughs> to everything else.
2: You'd be foolish to fire that gun. With these mirrors, it's difficult to tell. You are aiming at me, aren't you? I'm aiming at you, lover. Of course, killing you is killing myself. It's the same thing. But you know, I'm pretty tired of both of us. What I don't get is how um, Mike didn't get hit with a single bullet. I don't know. He sort of staggers out of there, though,
0: doesn't he? He's he's not. He doesn't look like a man who's completely um, well, I think comfortable he's, when he leaves. Well, he
2: been drugged. I think he's still... Well, he... Gide, himself. His, own, his own stupid actions
1: um, there's, there's a lot I think there's just a lot of the, the ending that doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah. um, like sort of he sort of eats, he staggers out and just assumes well everything's fine now because all the people that could testify to the fact that I've been framed are now dead so you know, I'm definitely going to go free now of this, this thing that I've been convicted of that's no problem, off I go
0: uh, what do you feel about Rita Hayworth?
1: I love her She's brilliant.
2: Um, she was all right. She was all right. <laughs> like to be to be honest, I love this. Like Seventy
0: years old, really with. She's all right. <laughs> Back in the day, we're like, Whoa. no,
2: well, no, I'm not. I'm not like re- like. She's a good looking, good looking lady. lass. eh? Hey, hey. she's a good looking lady. Um, I don't know. This film just kind of annoyed me. Okay, <laughs> to be honest, like I was watching it, I'm like, uh, just i don't know the, the acting didn't seem like like genuine uh-huh. you know especially especially with, with moik um it, and and her as well it's like I, I don't know it's just it's too fairy tale or something to a certain degree it's a good way to look at it
0: i think as a as a sort of fairy tale it's, it's probably not bad um
1: I we, think there is an intre- I mean there's an interesting dynamic between the two of them uh, there s- couldn't not be
0: no so so you won't be aware of their history Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles were married oh, I didn't know that so they were married for several years uh, at the time they made a leave from Shanghai they had been separated for a couple of years Weird. and working on the production Rita apparently wanted to do it she was one of the first names down on, well, yeah, they, on the all along it seemed
1: to be pretty amicable I mean it, I, it brought the separation them back together. The, yeah the, the divorce and everything seems to have been amicable enough um
0: they, they were, I mean, as far as I'm aware, they were still in contact. They had um, a child. One child?
1: One child? One child, I, I
0: think, think, one child. So they were still in contact for years and years afterwards. Like, they, mm. they got on okay, but they, it brought them back together again for a little while while they produced the film. They divorced just before it went on general release. Um, And what people tended to do, what, what critics have often done since then as they've looked back on it, And they've looked back on Rita Hayworth and how her screen image was in particular and said that this is Orson Welles taking revenge on his ex. Um, And that, that was put to Orson, and Orson just said that, no, we were actually, we
2: were fine. And I had divorced from Rita. And she came to me and said, I want to make your picture. I want you to come back with me. Harry sent for me and said, I want you to do that with Rita for her sake. Well, that turned it from five weeks to a big super movie. And the essential plot is the plot of the book that I pointed to, which I had never read. So the theory, which has been printed a thousand times, that this was an act of vengeance against Rita that it was a great device which I was going to degrade her and so on. It's nonsense because all that's in the book. She'd read the book and wanted to play this character. Sure she was an actress. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I think that at times it probably was quite strange because anyone who's going through an up and down... Relationship uh, and, and yeah, the, I mean... And having the film, we, We've all been there or we've been in the situations where things get strained, you yeah. know, and it's not easy but they, they, they seem to be okay and... He argues the case that the stuff that was done, Rita, was all on board with, and it was done basically because it suited the character. She couldn't be the, the screen image that she normally was. No, they... I do
1: genuinely think that it's it's probably it's it's a bold move, and I think it's kind of a, a really canny move to get rid of that iconic red hair for this. I mean, not only because femme fatales are often blonde. You're,
0: you're about to say to me, "This is a black and white film. How do you know her hair's red?"
1: Because she's really Hayworth. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, but, exactly. But, it, it looks but different
1: I mean, on camera. Iconically, at this point in terms of 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 film noir, she is Gilda. You know, and and Gilda has the flowing locks of 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 auburn hair, um, and Gilda a very different kind of uh, film noir heroine.
0: I don't know that one, one can even necessarily look at it in relation to that because these two films come come so close together in terms of their production history. Um, but
1: that's the role for which she's most well-known. I mean, she even says it herself later in life. You know, men, that, men go to bed with Gilda and wake up with me.
0: But that... But that, that yeah, I, I would need to look at their actual production dates. Uh, yeah, I suppose dates. so, yeah. I suppose. Um, um, I might think, be a bit close. I think iconically, perhaps, but at that time, the, the things are back essentially back-to-back. Back. I don't think there's been enough time between the two films for that to be cemented as the iconic Rita Hayworth role. No,
1: I, I think that's probably fair enough, but... Um,
0: you know she can she can still mold that that screen image quite a bit, and this is something that's a bit different. You know, so you trim these flowing locks, um, you uh, you dye her hair a color that she's never been before, and yeah, it stands it stands out.
2: Is she natural? Natural redhead? redhead yeah. No, no she's no? not. No, is she brown brunette.
1: She's uh, uh, of Hispanic origin. It, is that a hair color? Uh, she would have had black hair. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know enough yeah to, to no, know
1: um that. yeah no she she had serious amounts of work done to mm. uh make her look more in line with with conventional Hollywood ideals the electrolysis and her hairline and and all sorts of stuff yeah um I it's i I part of that whole sort of origin story upsets me a bit uh, because well, she's molded yeah she's molded um and and denied, effectively. I mean, she was beautiful. She was objectively very... I mean, she is, at this point, even when she's been transformed into Rita Hayworth, she's objectively very, very beautiful. Um, But that image has been controlled to the extent that her very sort of origins are being... Denied and written over.
0: But then this is is, is the Hollywood film industry at yeah, that time as well. That's I mean, they true. did it with pretty much every actor out there, yep. is that they, they shape and mould how you're going to look. They decide on your name, they decide on, on who you want to be seen with. Yep,
1: it's the star you, system.
0: You can only date certain people really oh yeah I mean it's total and absolute control um they do similar things over in Britain uh later on uh, as well whenever the British film industry is getting up and going the studios will take control of of what you do and how you are seeing it and it still exists today um some people are more resistant to it there's a little bit more independence but a lot of what you see you know if you think about it if you look at it, it it doesn't you know you can't subject it to too much scrutiny but decisions are made regarding these people's lives it is very very strange but that is how it was didn't know that but i i mean i think she's i actually really like her in this um she's she's captivating i i think it's i think it's quite bold to have her do that song which is is, is pretty um pretty striking when she sings it's on, not on her boat, singing
1: and... of course no
0: I mean, for me, Rita Hayworth is absolutely captivating in the film. I think that those shots of her. Um, I mean, there's a sense of her as an object of sexual gratification and objectification within the film.
1: Which is just what a femme fatale does.
0: We're basically looking at them the whole way through. All the characters in that film are looking at her mm. the whole way through. They're all captivated in some way, shape or form. Um, not only her husband, but also her husband's seedy, creepy looking friend. Um, you know, what, George? Is that what you're doing yeah, right? yeah. Um, we see her sitting on the rocks, doing her, you know, just sunbathing. Most of that done in long shots, so it's actually not that that intrusive. See that dive. Yeah. Oh, impossible dive! Clearly diving off a different rock to the one that she's lying on. Yeah. It's still
1: very voyeuristic, oh, though. Oh, completely. The long shot. I mean, it's it's designed to look like we are looking at her.
0: I'd see. Yeah, um, but that shot where she's actually lying on on the uh, on the decks of the ship itself, mm-hmm. and she's you know they, they got this they the, the kind of rather sexy hypnotic song, and and that glorious glorious close up of her face, you know it it's she just fills the screen and. I suppose it's also an awareness that at the time, because people have this impression of her, because they're going to see her as much as they're going to see Orson Welles, probably more so to see her than they were to see Orson, to be fair. Um, there's actually a payoff in the sense that you do get to see her face filling a screen, you know, like yeah. this image, you know, 40 feet tall that you're going to see in a cinema and, and just be suckered into it.
2: See, uh, or- Orson? Yeah. It's... The whole way through that movie, I just felt like he had just one, one expression.
1: <laughs> yep, one, that's not one, unfair. <laughs>
2: one level, uh-huh. and there
0: was no dynamic. Like, I'm glad you've seen other Orson Welles films, though, so you know that he's got a bit of range. Yeah, um,
1: he's actually a magnificent actor.
2: Hmm. Um, like it was just this monotone. Just, I think of, it's the accent, but also I'm, you, you, I'm a, a depressive little I, Irishman. I, I, that, has killed the man you know
0: i I don't know if you notice as well but a lot of the dialogue in the film is dubbed yeah which is also one of orson miles's favorite ways of working was he would shoot a lot of the stuff mute and then he would dub it all later because this comes from his days working on radio yeah um when you worked on radio you had total control of the performance but i suppose arguably like what we're doing today you know you have total control about how we signed on 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 the mics and stuff (laughs) (laughs) um Yes. But it's exactly what he did and why he loved that as a medium. You know, he could control every bit of it. Whereas whenever you're filming and you're filming on location, yeah. You know
2: uh, Well sound is yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be awful.
0: We we've all been on sets, we all know the dangers of you know, when you're on location and you've got uh, cars going on when they shouldn't be there, yeah. airplanes flying overhead.
2: That's the thing whenever the guy was playing the jumbo guitar. Yeah. I was like, he's not playing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's completely different and it's completely
0: risky and there is no control and you're so open to to the elements and that's not Orson Welles' way of doing things. As Rachel says earlier, he is uh, almost like a megalomaniac. He he likes his control. I,
2: I, I think every now and then he's willing to give it to somebody else. Plus, you, know. you got like the technology wouldn't have been there for, I don't, the yeah, tie mics and and then you know booms. That's and it. All that. So,
0: so the technology hasn't yet caught up with where we can do today. So there are limitations as well. At least it means the dialogue is uniform. You do get to hear it pretty much at the same level. Yeah. You know, it's well, not like we go into other. You know, sometimes you go into film and it's all over the place.
2: Yeah, there there were some parts in it, um, where just. Because my sound brain mm. works, um, you could tell that it was different, uh, like overdubs uh-huh. being used, because um, the mic, whatever mic they were using, different being different, yeah. or the person was maybe off axis or uh-huh. you know, talking away from the the mic. That was, you a, good, that was a good example there, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> I thought of it. Yeah, you know. um, so, yeah, I. I, I <laughs> So you can kind of tell it's been overdubbed and not.
0: So it is kind of interesting in a way that even with that and with that total control that he he doesn't have more range within within the part. But I I actually don't think this is really Orson Welles's film. Yeah, no, it, the I, film is not about him. It's Rita's film.
1: Yeah, and I I think as well the film that we have is not the film that he wanted to make. Hmm. I think the bits that we have are the bits that are the most conventional. <laughs> they're the most. they the most in line with what Hollywood expects you to turn out as a Hollywood director at this period. Ah. Um, the bits that were very, very Orson Welles, probably the bits that he connected with as a filmmaker, I imagine, are the bits that didn't make it in. The best which is bits, just, Yeah, basically. it's just what happens to him all the way through his Hollywood career is that, you know, they, they, they give him so much rope. He uses that rope to hang himself spectacularly. <laughs> the studio nick the film back and recut it so that the whole reason why you hire Orson Welles is to have an Orson Welles film and then they turn it into a Hollywood film so yeah I, I I do suspect that the bits that we've got are not the bits that he was really trying to shine at because they're the filler bits between the big set pieces that he wants to film.
2: Does he have any films that he had complete and utter total control? Citizen Kane Is that the only one?
1: Um, Uh, well there's certainly his his European style oh god Citizen Kane is one of the best films ever made and I I will fight on that hill and die there
0: he is not that prolific a director because he spends a lot of time working on films um, that never really get anywhere. A
1: lot of time trying to get money for films once Hollywood has enough with him.
0: As an actor he is everywhere. As a a personality he's everywhere but the reason he's everywhere is because he will take any job at all that pays him in order that he can make the films that he wants to make.
1: I think Um, the European stuff is probably... I mean, when he's making the films for very little money, they are probably closer to the kind of films that he wants to make because he has much greater creative control over them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think in my head about his list because um, obviously there's this Citizen Kane but the next one, Magnificent Ambersons, he does. Taken
1: off and by the studio, significant cuts made.
0: Um, and it's developed an almost mytho- mythological status. I think The Trial is more or less his.
1: Uh, it's, again, European, isn't it? Uh, European it's a European money.
0: film. Uh, Touch of Evil was hacked by the studios. It's not his, his finished film.
1: Although that is so very, very well, And I can't, you know, I, I think the studio had nowhere to go with that unless... Um, other than to let it be Wellsian, *Chance uh, uh, at
0: Midnight*. *Chance at, at Midnight*. Uh, *F for Fake* is, is Oh a, God,
1: *F for Fake* is so very, very, very Orson Welles. It's very
0: Orson Welles, but it's also partly a found footage film. It's partly made up from somebody else's documentary that he got rights to, so it's not entirely an Orson Welles film. *The Other Side of the Wind*, which was eventually completed only a couple of years ago, um, ultimately was a film that was finished by somebody else. Yeah. Um, the same with his man uh, with his Don Quixote. You know, it was a film that ended up being finished a version of it by somebody else so it's not we don't even have an idea about how he would have cut it yeah yeah, actually I'm not convinced that any of the films that we see of Orson Welles
1: no I think Citizen Kane I think that was the problem with Citizen Kane was that it was
0: arguably Citizen Kane and that's it
1: I mean, he he did Citizen Kane. He he just Orson welles the hell out of Citizen Kane. um, And the film did not do what it was supposed to do at the box office. So what... Mm.
2: Coming from a non-educated sort of background in the whole Orson Welles thing, what is it about Orson Welles that... Is so, it's so special,
0: special. Um, I think it's probably more obvious if we sat and we watched Citizen Kane and we talked about it because then you're seeing what he's doing for the first time, where he's doing things like he'll have shots that include
2: is that a later film?
0: Oh or- yeah, film. this is first feature. Yeah, and he was
1: 24,
0: so really, really young,
1: talented little bastard. Massive
0: film, um, but it's the way he uses lights. It's the way he changes the way that uh, you know the way he uses deep focus
1: he has an instinctive sense of cinema that really it, it caused him to innovate it it caused him to to use cutting edge techniques and to make use of techniques that nobody had really understood the capacity of before um, he has an instinctive sense of story as well and and a, sort of a playful Attitude towards moulding that story into the story he wants to tell and making it his.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, See, he's, he's just he's got just an an instinct for cinema.
0: I I like how you like so much of what you you like about him is his storytelling. Um, for me, it's all about the visuals. I, I think No, vis-
1: I, d- I mean I also said the instinctive sense of cinema. I mean that that very much. So what he does in Citizen Kane and the the innovations that he introduces or introduces or popularizes, I suppose um he really understands how to use a camera mm-hmm.
0: like his his way that he positions a camera the way that he uses the lenses um what he chooses to show and not show um you know so something like touch of evil where he does that all in one take mm-hmm.
1: oh god it's so it's, amazing
0: it's not even just the technical brilliance about that it's about the decisions that you've made to tell that whole bit of storytelling using the camera and the point at which you decide I'm going to cut away from this now yeah.
1: there's a fantastic scene analysis of that and I'm not normally one to recommend scene analyses because I just find them a good sleep aid but um, there's a fantastic scene analysis and I can't remember the academic who does it but where they, they really unpack just how deeply brilliant um, the, the interaction of camera work and story and narrative is and how seamless it all is and um, in, in a way that makes it look invisible. It's, oh, it's amazing.
0: I think for me as well, Though the, the other thing that I, I love about Orson Welles, and I, I suspect we probably talked about this back when we did our Touch of Evil event all those years ago, yeah. um, is the fact that he is a director that beats his own drum the whole way through. He is so stubborn and so resilient. I mean, he's very, very fragile too, but he crafts things and he is so determined and, you know, he will work with nothing. He For all his egomania, He's quite prepared to take the crappiest of roles and the crappiest of films it, for, in order to literally create his art. He takes that money and he creates art with it. Yeah. He puts himself into really difficult situations just to create something that is artistic, that is that is beautiful. Um, and the fact that he's constantly up against the studio system that doesn't work for him, you know, as. as he begrudgingly kind of goes into it and he tries and, and just he's got too clear an idea in his own head about what he wants to do but he's also somebody who and this sounds egomaniac but I, I identify with is is that he's someone who can't quite finish who's, who's got this this fear of, of the final product because once it's finished people start judging it and because you always know you could have done it better and I think he's fiercely critical of himself
1: there's a damaged little boy inside him all the way through his entire career all the way through his life there's a damaged little boy he's the son of a brilliant mother who was kind of elbowed into uh, a type of domesticity that she was never really comfortable with but she was artistically and intellectually brilliant and she expected brilliance from both her boys. His older brother wasn't particularly brilliant so all the focus went on to Orson and he was expected and it was demanded of him and she died when he was quite young so this memory is kind of preserved inviolate in his head and all the way through his life he has to be special, brilliant little Orson Welles and if he's not brilliant then he's letting his mum down. You know, this this, this woman that he adored and 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 sort of that wor- that he worshiped and who had such high expectations of him I mean once once you actually look at the patterns for current now you know me I'm not into auteur theory at all I think there are a few directors um whose work you can't you just can't discuss without talking about that concept of the auteur and Wells is one of them. Um, and if you look at the, the things that kind of obsess him and that attitude he has to the work, to the creativity, to the perfectionism um, and that constant sort of belligerence, the kind of the pushing It's just it's such a heartbroken little boy at the centre of it. It's really quite sad. I don't think he ever really found what he was looking for. Just looking at the work he was doing and the attitude that he had all the way through it.
0: No, I, I don't think so. I mean, he was a man who was born into a of privilege. You know, he he had wealth.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. Otherwise, he couldn't have come to Ireland as a as a teenager. Let's, yeah. let's be honest about that. Yeah. Um. But you know, he he was able to do um interesting stuff. He also was gifted and talented. The way that he worked with the Mercury Radio Project, um, the 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 sort of productions that they were putting on, the way that he was changing that medium. It's Orson Welles that does the adaptation of War of the Worlds in the nineteen thirties. that plays on the radio where people apparently yeah. thought, thought actually thought it, was act, actually thought it was an alien attack. Yeah, um, I mean that is something that even if you have never seen an Orson Welles film, you are probably aware about that story. Yeah, well, yeah, I've I've heard about that. Yeah, which
1: is again almost certainly an Orson Welles exaggeration.
0: It's, it's a great bit of publicity. Yeah, um, it, it it may be true to a tiny extent. A couple
1: of crazy people crazed. <laughs> the entire of America did not think they were under alien attack. Well, you never
2: know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, they probably were. Um, but, I mean, he he does it on radio. He's pushing the boundaries when it comes to theatre. He's pushing the boundaries with this. But he was so confident as well, I think. No, I don't think confident's the right word, but I think he was aware of his own abilities. Yeah. And I think he knew he was gifted in the arts. Um,
1: He's been told since he was old enough to walk that he was gifted in the arts.
0: But it's a lot with great power comes great responsibility with great responsibility yes and i think that for him even with that knowledge he knew that there, there was a lot more the more yeah. to it and and it, it was a struggle yeah um but for me it is that that sheer i look at his films and even something like lady from shanghai which initially to me you know can appear like a pretty run of the mill film the warish film has something else in it that sets it apart from other films of that era I right. have to watch a
2: load of films from that era. To sort of, pass.
0: it's it's beautiful, it's arresting. It, it visually, it's stunning. And for me, whilst he may have been dissatisfied with the way that the the climax at the the funfair worked out, I mean, for me, it's 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 captivating. It's interesting. Before we before we wrap this up, do yeah. you draw any other parallels between this and any of our other films that we've covered so far on the series? Oh, uh. Because I mean, you know, I have this idea now that our films at this point are now starting to link into each other. Well,
2: um, are you talking about location? You tell me what you've observed. Well, oh, it. Where was it? They ended up San San Francisco. San Francisco.
0: Sosleda <laughs> in San Francisco. Sosleda's just across the bay.
2: Um,
0: we've we've not touched on San Francisco on no. this show, have we? Well,
2: well, where is it? You. <laughs> San Diego was it? No.
0: Whale's vagina. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> is it,
0: is it, is it, isn't that the Anchorman line? Yeah. Oh, is that right?
2: <laughs> whale's vagina. Yeah.
1: Don't
0: mean we die myself, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> film, um, film critic fails.
2: No, yeah, well, where, where is it you were going? You I've, been gone, to the... I've been to San Francisco. Yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, I right.
0: did. A, I did a live video feed last year um, from the site so, yeah, of the fairground. That's what I. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we have, you know, for the last bunch of episodes, had a number of sort of San Francisco-themed films uh, turning up. Yeah. So, I mean, recently we've had, like, So I Married an Axe Murderer. We stuck one of our archive programs up about Harold and Maud. We looked at Vertigo. Um, You know, we have talked about San Francisco quite a bit. Yeah. So this is, sensibly, another one of those San Francisco films. And you may or may not have noticed... There's a point where Rita Hayworth's character is in a car driving up a hill and comes down another one as she's gone around. She's passing by Madeline's apartment in Vertigo. Oh. She actually goes right outside. She does a Jimmy Stewart.
1: Ten years before it's Madeline's apartment.
0: Well, we don't know how long Madeline's living there for. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline is probably living there at oh, that very point in come time. Come
1: on, she's about twelve. The Michael. actual Madeline.
0: Not the one that the, the, the one that got bumped off.
1: Fair enough. Okay.
0: You know, so I just think that's rather nice is that you have this point where you you're kind of coming back and you're looking at these same places, and yeah, like I don't know it's it's like this weird thing where you start to imagine all these characters living in this place and overlapping because and intersecting each lives Yes. I, I don't know, I'm just interested in this idea that if we keep on coming back to a space and you can sort of see how it changes, and I do like the idea that these characters are all existing within the same place yeah
2: although well, you you do in in uh lady from shanghai you do see a different Mm-hmm.
0: Well, this is it, like Chinatown, which, yeah.
2: you know, we, we. Chinatown and sort of, you know, the, the docks. Mm hmm. But, you know, we don't really get to see that side.
0: No, although your man works in the docks in Vertigo because he's in the apartment and all that stuff's happening I Yeah. Say, but well, we don't yeah, really get owned, into them. He's an owner of a shipyard, but we don't yeah. actually
2: see the shipyard. Yeah.
0: It's, it's just a, a, an interesting observation. You know I've got lots of stuff I want to do about San Francisco. It's, yeah. a, it's a space that I think is, is quite interesting. But after a while, these places start to get a resonance and they start to seem familiar. And if we're going to do San Francisco films at some point, I will have to introduce you to Dr. Goldfoot. <laughs>
2: and Bullet.
1: Okay, Bullet. Yeah. Do you know I've never seen Bullet? You've never seen Bullet? I've never seen Bullet. I was taught to think about love in Chinese.
2: The way a Frenchman thinks about laughter in French.
1: The Chinese say, it is difficult for love to last long. Therefore, one who loves passionately is cured of love in the end.
2: Well, that's a hard way of thinking.
1: There's more to the proverb. Human nature is eternal. Therefore, one who follows his nature keeps his original nature in the end.
0: Well, anyway, there we go. Um, that was uh, Orson Welles and Lady from Shanghai. Unless you guys have anything else you want to add to our thoughts?
1: No. No?
2: no. In unison there. I
1: like go. it fine. It's just not my favourite Orson Welles film.
2: I I could take it or leave it. <sighs> it's not. That's just the one-dimensional sort of Ooh, so acting. I, I don't know. It's probably too harsh, but it just kind of annoyed me.
0: It's how you respond to it I mean how you respond To the film Is entirely valid Yeah You know We're not telling you How you feel Um, I'm going to like it More and more Every time I watch it Weirdly Um, I've seen it I think three times In the last year And each time I've got something else Out of it Um, So I mean I I had never noticed The Madeleine's apartment Until the last few Yeah so it is one of those weird things is that the more stuff you, you kind of, the more you come back to something, the more you see, the more you, you kind of get along with it. But look, I, I think it's an interesting film. I think even a bad Orson Welles film is worth looking at and there is always something you'll get out of it.
1: I don't think there's such thing as a bad Orson Welles film. There's just less good Orson Welles films. Uh, there's film. certainly
0: some bad Orson Welles performances. But that's a, yeah. that's a pod yeah, for another okay. day.
1: that's a pod for another day.
0: As ever, thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thank me. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Robert. Oh, that was nice. Not prompted at all. Uh, You will catch us on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook as CinePunked. You'll find us on Instagram as Film, and our website is www.cinepunked.com. Hopefully, if this is your first time joining the podcast, you will have enjoyed it and you might leave us a little review on iTunes or subscribe. Definitely should subscribe. Uh, We've lots more episodes out there and we do other things as well. So have a look on our social media and our website and you'll find out all more about the CinePunked Project. Until the next time, bye bye. Bye.
1: Bye bye.